Isaiah 55, 1 to 11, a passage known widely, quoted widely, usually not quoted together. Um, but what I want to talk about today is why should we be serious about reading and studying the Bible? Um, I went to a conference some years ago where the pastor James Meeks, who is an Illinois state assemblyman and the pastor of the largest African-American church in South Chicago, said, um, you have got to preach the announcements. People aren't going to get up and do any— I can't be black, okay, so this is just my best attempt. Okay? People aren't going to get up and do what you, te- what you write in the bulletin? They're going to give you their lives because you printed something in English? You've got to preach the announcements. You've got to tell them why God says they ought to do the announcements. You can't just print them, right? So, that's what I'm going to try to do this morning with less flair. So let me ask you this. What emotion or sensation do you associate with the idea of reading and studying the Bible? I mean, honestly, think of an answer in your head. What emotion or personal sensation do you associate in your minds with reading and studying the Bible? Blessing. Blessing, okay. Well, you're on the varsity team. Um, And that's great. I'm really happy about that. Um, And and I think the the hope is that we grow into that. But you see, a lot of people, they don't start there, do they? They don't start there. What they, where they start is they, 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 are, they grumpily sit in church and they think, um, man, why do we have to study the Bible? I mean, Christianity would be so much better without 1,900 pages to learn, okay? If I could just come and I could just hear that Jesus loves me and he thinks that I'm fantastic and sing some songs and guess at how many cappuccinos Mar- or, um, John had this morning before he got here and if I could— he has a license to make fun of me too. And if, if, if I could just do that without having this consistent weighing guilt trip on my back because I have not memorized the content of the 1900 pages in this Bible, it would be so much less burdensome to be a Christian. And usually the emotion that jumps to mind when we think about reading and studying the Bible seriously for most people is not refreshing. Oh, studying the Bible, you know what I think of? I think of like a, a, a couple-year-old Herbal Essences commercial. I mean, I just think of a wonderful experience of just, aha, I see it, I get it, okay? It's not people, but um, one of the things that is, is iconic for a refreshing experience is walking out in the pouring rain, right? Now, if you don't think walking out in the pouring rain and doing one of these— is refreshing. You have been indoors just too long. I don't know what to tell you, okay? Or you have too many cell phones or electronic devices attached to your person because it should be refreshing to walk out in the pouring rain, even in the fall in Wisconsin, at least for a minute, and let it fall on you and just go, oh my gosh, I am alive. I can feel some sensation on my skin. I'm alive. There's life in this, right? In fact, I can, some of the some of the more dramatic moments of my life, like I can remember being rained on. Like if you think of like all the different things that happened in your life, but one of the things I remember more than anything else is being rained on. I remember being 19 and driving cross country after my first year in college um, and being with my friend Nathan Belcher, driving his Saab 900 Turbo, stopping at a restaurant, coming out into my first Midwestern downpour. 
right? That I assumed was about to be accompanied by a tornado with lightning streaking all across the sky. Step, thinking, I wonder if I can get to the car without getting soaked. And then realized after four steps, I was already soaked to the bone. And thinking, this is rain, buddy. <laughs> right? And it's just water. But my whole journey with my friend to Colorado amped up in its level of drama just because it rained on us. Because it's rain. It's refreshing, right? I remember one of my most memorable soccer games was going out and playing, I think it was Carthage Academy. I was on the, uh, the first year of the varsity team, and it started hailing. And then it's, it rained, and we, we were playing the whole game, and right at the end of the second half, there were these two really bright double rainbows that just shone really bright over the whole— I've only seen that— the only other time I've seen a double rainbow was the night I moved in here. Remember that in my house? It's the only other time I've seen it since. Um, or, right, a dramatic kissing moment at the end of a, a romance movie. It's just ten times better if it's in the rain. It's just— they were like, they were trying to figure out how to make the notebook make people cry more, and they said, you know, if we got them to get rained on them— that would just make it all the more alive, right? I still haven't watched that movie, but I, I saw it on Google. Um, you know, it's, there's, this, there's this whole lore about kissing in the rain. Like, I've probably gave my wife a number of melodramatic kisses in the rain when we were dating. In fact, the night we got engaged, there was this big downpour. I don't know what came over me, but I asked the woman to marry me, and here we are. And it was— but it was, I mean, it was pouring. We went into this little boathouse, and I could feel the spray of the rain coming through the screen while we were talking, and I kissed her, and I asked her to marry me, and I thought it was romantic, and, you know, there it is. Because, I mean, there's just, we have this, like, mentality, like, a kiss is good. A kiss in the rain is pretty awesome, right? I'm, okay, I'm slides behind here. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I just kind of got going. So there's soccer in the rain. Okay, now, there are some people who do not find rain refreshing. Can you imagine this? So this lady does not look as though she is finding the rain refreshing. For those of you who have a more mature audience, this gentleman, <laughs> if he spoke, he would say something like, this rain is not refreshing. Okay, that's all the funny parts. Let's get serious. Sorry. But if you were listening to the passage, right, isn't that how the passage ends? As the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and waters the earth and does not return to it without making things blood, bud and flourish and produce seeds so that we can make bread and eat and plant and live and grow and not die, that's the rain. It's refreshing. And what does God associate the rain with in this passage? He says, it's like my word that goes out from my mouth. Right? It's supposed to be refreshing. And what I want to tell you is, it can be. And I want to argue this with you from this passage in relatively brief fashion. This passage, verses 1 to 11, essentially breaks down into four parts, okay? Essentially breaks down into four parts. 
The first one is the invitation section, which is essentially verses one through seven, which is what is God's actual offer to failures? Now, the reason I say failures is because the book of Isaiah is written to a bunch of failures, okay? The whole reason the book of Isaiah exists is because God's people screwed up for the better part of 400 years, okay? And then they got sent into exile into Babylon, right? Their whole nation got destroyed. They got kicked out by God, sent to a city that hated their guts, and were told to live there for 70 years. And then he sent Isaiah to go encourage them. Okay, so by definition, the people receiving this message were sinners. They were people who'd blown it. They were people who were in moral and spiritual and housing exile, okay? And if you look at the passages around it, if you get to go back to chapter 54, there's a metaphor about somebody who's infertile, right? You go to the next chapter, and and to the people, God says, listen, I'm talking to these people too, are foreigners and eunuchs. Now, you'd be like, okay, a eunuch, I don't know what that relates to. Okay, a eunuch is somebody who can't have children because certain things have been removed, right? Now, why would somebody become a eunuch? Because eunuchs, where did eunuchs work, right? They only work in the royal household, right? That's why they get eunuchized, Okay, so if you're a eunuch, what's, what's happened? You've traded something. You've traded your ability to produce the next generation for position in this one. So though the, though the whole phenomenon of eunuch is more complicated than that, there's a certain way in which it parallels the work sellout. The person who gives themselves over to a sort of workaholism, ladder climbing, to hell with everything around me. I'm going to make it into the royal household. And if my children, or if I don't have any children because I'm just going to be career, you know, that's just, that's just what's going to be the case because I'm, dang it, I'm going to be in the top level, right? And so God is talking to these people. He's talking to people who are spiritual moral failures. He's talking about people who have unfortunate lives. He's talking to people who are outside of his people. So if you're unchristian, non-Christian, I took a 20-year break Christian, anti-Christian. God doesn't care if you don't want to talk to him. He's still talking to you. That's what foreigner means here, okay? And so this is who he's talking to, and he gives this, sorry, he gives this, um, this invitation where in three verses, he basically pleads in 12 different ways, come. Listen, come to me. Be mine. Come into this. And the metaphor he uses is not, I'm going to create this really judgmental, burdensome, moralistic, um, pleasure-hating group of people who whip themselves and throw darts at each other um, while they ridicule the world through plate glass. That's not the picture of the divine community that he creates. The picture of the divine community he creates is a huge, enormous party. That's what it is. Listen, you can say whatever you want about God being stuffy, but the stuffiest book in the Bible is perhaps Leviticus. Leviticus, right? We call that the insomnia healer, right? Be healed. But in, in Leviticus, where God is like, rule, 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 what, you know what seven of the rules are? Have a party, have another 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 party. That's seven of the laws. Have seven parties. And celebrate something real. Celebrate harvest. Celebrate when I brought you out of Egypt. Celebrate how you don't wander in the desert anymore. I mean, every time they were to have a party, it was to celebrate something real. Something worth celebrating. But it was a command to have seven parties. And here, if you put verse 1 and 2 together, in verse 1 it says, come and buy wine. And in verse 2 at the very end, what does it say? And you will eat the richest fare or the best of— 
He's advertising, look, we're going to have the best wine, buddy. You want to be at this one, okay? I mean, this is not a prudish kind of invitation. This is an invitation to something wonderful. Now, the second bit here, verses 6 and 7, is the choice. I mean, okay, you're invited, okay, so how do you accept this, right? And in in verse 6, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Okay, that could, you could think that's a little spiritual and vague, right? Sometimes the way things are said in Scripture, you've got to be like, okay, what's the exact, what do I actually, actually do? Well, read the whole couple of verses, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Okay, what does that exactly mean? Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and our God, for he will freely pardon. So, okay, this is called biblical parallelism. These three things, where's my little laser? There it is. Seek the Lord, call on him, and turn to the Lord are all essentially referring to the same thing, coming to God, okay? So what he's saying is you've got to just come to God. Well, how do you come to God? He says, well, first, say something. (laughs) He's saying, call on him. Like, actually, open your mouth and say, God, help me, save me. Draw me to yourself. Help me turn towards you. I mean, you can come up with a colloquial expression. He's just asking for the basic content and for you to open your mouth. Do something, right? And when it says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near, there can be this kind of sense of, what do you mean while he may be found or while he is near? Now, there's two ways you can take this. One is this general sense of, well, eventually you're going to die. And your, you know, your time period of making the decision is going to be kind of over. But see, there's, an, there's another sense, if you think about this in terms of how people come to God, is you are not going to be emotionally equally disposed to come to God equally throughout your whole life, okay? What, what happens in reality is the way people believe things and make decisions and so on, particularly that have strong spiritual and moral import, is— there are times when the thing hits you like a ton of bricks. There are times where you're going along and you, you either have a moment like this or you're, you know, you're thinking. Um, or speaking of rain, remember we had a baptism a couple weeks ago and Jim said it was a night where it was storming and pouring outside. And the truth of the gospel came on me like a ton of bricks. Remember that? Sometimes it, but there, there are certain moments where it hits you. And what he's saying is, don't let that pass. Don't go, well, yeah, I can make this decision later. Well, you, you technically, yes, you can make the decision later, but will you make the decision later? It's much more unlikely you will if when it hits you, when the Lord, you sense the Lord drawing near, if you go, well, I'll, I'll make this decision later. What he's saying is, no, you capitalize on that moment. You decide then. Because you cannot trust yourself later when self-interest comes back and takes its share in your moving mentality to actually do what's right and true and good. The voice of self-interest, the voice of sin, the voice of selfishness, the voice of idolatry, me being the God of my own life, is a loud, convincing, persuasive voice. And in the moment when the Spirit pushes that out and speaks clearly, do not wait Okay. Now, if you look at it this far, this far, essentially what you've got is the gospel, right? You've got God saying, you've got, you, you got no resources that we need to talk about here, okay? 
He's talking to failures and foreigners and sellouts and us, right? <laughs> Me. And he's saying, listen, just come. Just come. You don't have any money. It's fine. Just come. You don't, you don't have any food, but you're hungry, aren't you? You don't, you don't have any water, but you're thirsty, aren't you? Why would you go and try to put together some resource to try to buy something that isn't food and water? Why would you go out and try to work in the field to earn money to buy something that isn't going to be— when, you, when I'm offering you for free what, not only what you need, but what your heart's deepest desire actually is, so that if you received it, you'd need nothing else? Why would you even do that? You see how he's, he's making the invitation, and he says, look, the only condition is you just that you come. You have to accept who you are and what you are, and just be honest and be humble and then just come. Just say, God, help me find you. Help me, just save me, right? Now, then we get to the verse that people tend to quote, right? Have you ever heard people quote, well, you know, the Bible says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. So if you don't understand what's happening in your life right now, now, I, I don't mean to belittle that. I mean, that is true. That, you can use that verse for that purpose. That is what God is saying, right? But here's the thing that's important to think about in that verse, is, that, is what verse 8 starts with. Verse, starts with. verse 8 starts with what we like to call in biblical theology, or in the, probably in the inductive study Bible class, a connecting word. God starts the verse with the word for, right? He's just said something. Now he's saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. Now, the, the reason why that's important is because the whole reason he apparently says this— sorry, I'm having a little trouble— is that he recognizes that what he said so far isn't believable to the normal, sinful human like you and me. He realizes that this invitation he's just given, on the terms he's just given it, is not believable. And pr practically speaking, I could, and I, look, I didn't, I didn't intentionally make these all start with E, okay? It just happened, all right? I'd been up late, and it was at an elder's retreat, and um, there's at least four reasons that I can think of why we would normally, at humans, situated the way we are, our minds working the way they do, say, look, this, is, this can't be right. And the first is that, um, is experiential unbelief. That is, um, offers like this are never true. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, think about it. I mean, about every decade, I fall for one of these, right? Yeah, like they're really going to give you a free droid. Yeah, that's going to happen, buddy. No, they're not! Okay, you're not getting a free droid. You're not getting a free iPhone. I, I mean, 99% uh, of those offers are false. You're not getting a free cruise. You're not getting a free car. You're not getting a free squat, okay? Right? The saying, there is no free lunch, is truer than the sign up for four, five, and then six offers that will cost you $39.95 a piece, and then you'll get a free droid. And then you can always just make 27 phone calls and cancel all these things and be on hold for seven hours of your life. Okay? I didn't do it recently. You'd think from what I said, maybe, but it's, no. They're never true. So you hear this gospel offer, come to the greatest party ever in the history of the universe— with the best wine, 
with the most joy, with the best life, with real community, with real love, all the things you left church to find and all the things that are in church that you need as they were originally intended by God in human life, put together in real holiness and goodness and righteousness all in one place forever. Do you want it? And we just go, that's too good to be true, buddy. There's no way that's going to happen. Now, that's not logically necessary. That's just what we are wired to think. The second is emotionally unbelievable. What king would plead this shamelessly to draw in weasels like you and me? Nobody does that. Nobody that important does that. The idea that, oh, Isaiah 55, that God says, oh, come to me and, well, yeah, whatever. I've never seen that. I've never seen someone so high plead with someone so despicable. That doesn't happen. And the only, and if you don't have that objection, you just don't think you're bad enough. You think you're a pretty good guy, and so why wouldn't God invite you like this? But if you really come into the context of Isaiah, that these are people that were tossed out of God's country because they were horrible. They were a bunch of lying, cheating weasels, and then God gives those people this invitation, and then think that's a good parallel with you and me. Then you ought to just be like, who does that, right? And it, for some people, it's just ethically unbelievable. We'll still, we're still kind of on our ethical high horse, and we're just like, how is that even fair? I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. You can just invite that weasel just same as me? It shouldn't, it, yeah, that might be nice. It might be a happy invitation, but how is that a good invitation given a righteous, good, holy God, right? Meanwhile, under the delusion that if it wasn't like that, we'd still make the cut, which is not true according to Scripture. And then it's empirically unbelievable. The fact is that when God says no one has ever thought this up before, the fact is, is that no one has actually really ever thought this up before. Now, if you study other world religions or the made-up sort of salad bar religion that your neighbor made up in their 20s, and you kind of look at that and you sort of try to figure it out, or yours, I guess I should say, um, what you're going to find is that it is not salvation given completely by God on sheer faith, trusting to transform you only by the fact that you've received his generosity and love and that that should be transformative enough. No, there is no religion in the world that has ever taught that. Now, in the last hundred years, because every other world religion is angling to get converts from Christianity, a lot, of, a lot of religions have been publishing material to make themselves sound like Christianity, and a lot of fairly ignorant people have, you know, read a little here and read a little there and seen enough similarity so that they could be pluralists because they want to be pluralists because it's a lot easier culturally, and they've just said, well, all religions are basically the same. All that proves is your ignorance. If you think that, I don't mean to be mean. I've been sort of studying religion for 20 years and, well, not quite that long, but I've been studying it professionally for at least a decade, and it's just not true. I've been to India three times to study Buddhism and Hinduism. I, I know what—I've read all the Quran multiple times. I've debated um, Muslim apologists. I know what these religions teach. They do not teach this. They do not teach this. They do not teach that we stink— that we can never make ourselves better, that there is a God who is completely morally serious about our failure, but who, through atonement, has reached out and given absolute free grace and mercy to anybody who would accept it, the only condition being you accept the truth of your wretched state. That's the only condition of salvation. You accept the truth of your wretched state and you come to him. That's it. 
and that the transforming work is not done by threatening once someone is converted, but the transforming work is done by the fact of, I've been generous and loving towards you. Now, how will you learn to be generous and loving like me? It's essentially how we're transformed. There, there is, we, human beings have never thought this up. So when God says, listen, my thought, just like, the, just like the sky is higher than this whole world, so my thoughts are higher than yours, that's an empirical fact, friends. Verses one through seven, if that is God's main thought in the redemption of people, it is just an empirical fact that we can't think this up because we haven't. I would have never thought that up. When I learned growing up at a church, and see, this is so mind-boggling to human beings that we Christians are constantly undoing it. I mean, you try to find a church that believes the gospel, that we are saved completely by God's free grace. You make no contribution to it. He saves you. We just find a way to make accepting the fact that we stink somehow a good work that makes us lovable. It's kind, of, it's kind of like your wife committing adultery like 15 times and thinking that a good reason for her to come back home is for her to go, yeah, yeah, I kind of did it with 15 other dudes. That doesn't make you more lo- lovable. <laughs> That's your, I mean, it's the truth is still the truth about us. I mean, you, and the church is constantly saying, yeah, yeah, we're saved totally by free grace, but the people who get real good treasure in heaven, those are the people who like are in church every week and really live godly and totally just read their Bible and know it super well. I mean, most of us really think that you're going to have a bigger mansion in heaven if you have most of Ecclesiastes memorized. And there's nothing of that in the Bible. The idea that Jesus rewards people, yeah, that's in the Bible. But everybody he saves gets to go to that party. You know, you have a bigger house than me. Listen, I'm going to be too Jesus lookered up to know. I mean, I won't even care. I'm going to be there. Jesus is going to be there. I'm going to be at the feast. I don't care if your house is bigger than mine. You're not probably going to have a lock in You're probably going to have to have to let me come over. Be like, good thing I was out at church. Now I get the pool. The whole neighborhood comes over every day. I mean, it is so mind-boggling that not only has no other religion ever come up with it, our religion keeps trying to get rid of it. And so God says, guys, listen, my ways are just not your ways. My thoughts are just not your thoughts. And it's not that my thoughts are like astrophysics thoughts that are so complicated you could never understand them. It's that, it's that your moral situatedness, the way you see yourself as the center of your world and how you think that you're really good and how you, the myths that you create culturally to create emotional safety for yourself and everything that makes you human disconnects you from the ability to think these thoughts. And so if I don't tell them to you, you're never going to derive them. And it's not because they're hard thoughts. It's because we're oblivious to those thoughts. And so God says, listen, so there's a solution to this. How about I just tell you? (laughs) Right? Because he says, right, remember the, the, the first idea is just like the heavens or the sky, the clouds are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, right? But then what does he say? But what, there's something that comes from the heavens, right? Yeah, his thoughts, it's like they're up in the heavens, it's that they're that removed, but there's something removed from us that we need for life that is up in the heavens that we could never go get, but that the, the, the clouds can give to us. I can't go up and get the water out of the sky, but the sky can freely give it to me. 
and give me life. And he says, that's exactly what happens. He said, because you see, redemption would not have been enough. If you believe what God is saying in this chapter, you have to believe that redemption was not enough to save us. He had to explain it to us. He had to do it, and then he had to say, now let me break this down for you because you're not going to get this. I mean, this is why Jesus died on the cross and had a teaching ministry. In fact, most of the Gospels are split up about 50-50. About half of it's about his death, but half of it's about his teaching, which is mostly about his death. Because he had to explain it to us. We needed revelation. We needed God to speak because we could never cook up these ideas ourselves. So the rescue from the dilemma of God telling us something that's completely unbelievable for us is him saying, listen, you could know it, but I have to give it to you. I have to give you the revelation. And so he says, see the connecting word? As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Which is salvation. So, I think what our need is, and forgive me if this is too cheeky and metaphorical for you, but whatever you think about the Bible, if you will take this passage seriously, essentially what God is saying is is that what you really need is to walk out into the rain. That's what you need. Your, Your deepest need really is to get under the word the revelation. You need to walk out and put your hands out, and put your face up and rec- could never make this happen. You can't make it better. There is no substitute for it. And that the main problem with our dislike of it is our attitude towards it, right? You see, the lady who has on a nice dress and nice makeup and has a busy day and is trying to get from one place to another, the rain is total inconvenience for her. It's just making her soggy. And she doesn't like it. But for the person who recognizes what it is, that it is the life creator, it is the refresher, it is the thing the earth needs, that person has the ability to stop and put their hands out and put their face up and drink it in, recognizing that he could never make this happen, but he can put himself under it. And so what I want to encourage you to do really practically, and you may find this meddlesome, but I'm just preaching the announcements like Pastor James told me. Is I want you to take out this sheet of paper. There are seven opportunities for, for you and some of your fellow travelers to get under the rain. Um, one of the changes we made in adult Bible fellowships uh, this semester is uh, we limited their scope so no matter what you sign up for, you're not signing up for more than 12 weeks. So you're not signing up for a life sentence here. This is a misdemeanor right here now, okay? 
And we also split it up into levels. So if you're a visitor, you just got to church, you're basically agnostic, you don't know anything about the Bible, you're, you're concerned that nobody's going to explain to you the difference between the big numbers and the little numbers, just get right up here in number one under Explore High Point Church and take Explore High Point Church, right? If you're a little bit further along, but you're, you don't want to, you know, I mean, you don't want to get in there with the engineers and stuff, then, you know, um, number two might be really good for you. Pick something in there. We've tried to, to gradate, gradate these things based on difficulty as well. So they're shorter, they're graded by difficulty, they're, they're bite-offs that you can handle. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill this sheet out, and I want you to put a mark in something. Now, if you don't want to put a mark in something, so I can't, I'm not going to make you, I'm trying to persuade you, I'm not trying to force you. Just put N slash R, not ready, but still fill out this information just so that we have accurate information. Might as well kill another bird with that stone, right? I want you to fill this out because when we're, we're going to sing another song and then we're going to do a reverse altar call. You're going to take this and you're going to walk out one of these doors as you go to the picnic and you're going to put it in a basket that the, that the ushers are going to be holding so that we'll actually have accurate signups. Wouldn't that be amazing? Now, I'm going to be pushy again next week. I mean, you're not done, okay? But this is one of the things we can all do together. Get together with some other fellow travelers. Do something practical to get under, this, under the water. And if you do this with a changed attitude, if you get under the water to find some life instead of running through it so you don't mess up your makeup, if you can change your attitude, what you'll find is your experience will change. Probably shouldn't keep this in my pocket, huh? Just keep switching everything. Your attitude will change. It will go from being an inconvenience, an overwhelming interaction with an enormous book, and it will become something that's refreshing. It will become, as was said in the first minute, a blessing. Let's pray. Father, as we fill these things out together, I pray that you would bring us together as a church for us all to study your word. I pray that um, you would begin to convince people's hearts right now of your promise, that just like the rain does not hit the ground and fail to produce crops and bread and the things we need to live. So if we will simply step out and interact with your word, however incompetently, but diligently and desirously, and if we call on you as we do it and seek you with our hearts, um, that you will meet us, that you will refresh us, that you will bring life, and that our attitude will change and we will find it to be a great blessing. I pray that people, um, I pray there'd be a couple people here who, who said last week, there's no way on earth I am staying here with my kids or I'm staying here for another hour to do ABFs. I don't care how nice a video they show me. I pray that some of those people be signing up right now, Father. I pray that you would convince them from Isaiah 55, from your own word, that what they need most desperately is your own word. Apply redemption to us as a people through your revelation, we pray.